There was a man who was given the assignment to become the new ambassador to the United States from Brazil. He went to Washington, D.C. with great hope in his heart for effectiveness. His first assignment was to attend a party at the Department of State. And he was a little nervous because although he knew English well, he was not altogether efficient with regard to the idioms. And you know how that is. Some of you have crossed over into other cultures where the language was different than your mother tongue. It's difficult sometimes, isn't it? Well, at this particular party, the Secretary of State of the United States was seeking to make a connection with the Brazilian ambassador and came up to him and said to him, Are you married? Yes, I am married, he said. Do you have any children? Uh, no, my wife is not with me because she's settling our affairs in Rio de Janeiro. And so he went on to say, feeling the need to explain why he, why he and his wife had no children, he said, to tell you the truth, my wife is inconceivable. And by the look on the Secretary of State's face, he knew he had chosen the wrong word. And he caught himself, and he was very quick-minded. He says, actually, my wife is impregnable. And this startled, this really startled the Secretary of State. And finally, he just decided he was just going to be just real honest. And he said, the truth is, my wife is unbearable. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was grasping for the right word. It's a good thing she was not there to hear all those descriptions of her. Today, we're going to look at a verse of Scripture from the book of Isaiah, the 7th chapter, the 14th verse. And it has to do with one of the promises of God regarding the coming Messiah. And this particular verse and this prophecy is certainly one difficult to explain. If the Brazilian ambassador had a difficulty explaining it, you can be sure I, as a messenger of the Lord, would have a bit of difficulty in explaining it. So we want to ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today, helping us to understand this great prophecy. It's been said that the Old Testament is a collection of clues about the Christ. I think that's a good description of what the Old Testament is. It's been estimated that there are 330 clues, prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Do you think the Holy Spirit had the Messiah's coming on his mind when he inspired the biblical writers to write the books which they wrote in the Old Testament? Why, of course, he did. Now let's look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Now let me look at this verse in some detail with you. Notice who the initiator of this unique birth is. Who is the one who had the idea to send a child who would be born of a virgin? Well, obviously, it's the Lord himself. The Lord was the one who gave this sign. This is a picture of our salvation. The Lord God Himself is the initiator of our salvation. 
we have no inclination toward God. You might say, wait a minute, Mike. I remember when I sensed in my own heart a need and a desire to know God. I remember how I heard about Jesus Christ and I wanted to give my life to Jesus Christ and I did give my life to Jesus Christ. Thank God that was your experience. But please know that the Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 3, there is no one who seeks the Lord. We do not start the process of seeking God by our own initiative. It is God Himself which instigates this. It's the impulse of His work in our spirit that begins to awaken us out of not just a deep sleep, but out of death spiritually, because that's what the Bible says about us. Before we came to know Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sin. And the Lord awakens us. And in this particular verse of Scripture, this great clue, perhaps one of the greatest clues to the identity of the Messiah, we see that the Lord Himself was the one who gave this sign. He goes on to say in verse 14, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. I'm going to pick this apart a little bit. In the original text, there is not an indefinite article. The article A is not in the original language text. It's actually the definite article. So this is the way we would read it if we read it properly. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. In other words, God had one woman in mind when He inspired Isaiah to write this verse, and we know her name, Mary, the little maiden from Nazareth, to whom the angel Gabriel came, and how Gabriel greeted her and startled her probably and puzzled her with what he had to say to her about the fact that she would bear God's child. Now look at this a little further. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. When the Bible teaches about conception and birth, typically it speaks about a father begetting children. Curiously and importantly absent from this statement is no reference to a father. There is no reference to any begetting, although we do know that God himself begat Jesus Jesus is God's only begotten Son. We know that, but there's no reference to this. The emphasis is on the miraculous nature of this conception. Hold your place here and go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. When God is speaking to the serpent who has deceived Eve, and Eve has sinned, as has Adam, look at what God says to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Notice this statement, the second line, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. When we think of seed as it relates to conception, we don't think about a woman she is the receptacle of the seed. Her body is. Her womb is. But we see here a reference that's odd, in a sense, to us because God speaks about the woman's seed. Even in the Garden of Eden, God had this master plan for the salvation of the world mapped out. And as we go back now 
to Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. The word be with child in some of your translations is translated conceive. Conceiving and bearing a son, those are terms which are typically associated with a woman, not with a man. And then the text goes on to say, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God is with us. It's so awesome to think about that this time of the year is the time when we celebrate the incarnation, the enfleshing of God in a man, a baby actually, the son who was born. This was before the days of sonograms and amniocentesis. But Joseph and Mary knew months before the child came into this world that the child was a male child. Here again is part of the miracle. And Jesus became a man. I like what J.I. Packer says about the incarnation. He said, man, this boy, this baby, is God contracted to a span. An 18-inch span. Can you imagine infinity incarnated in 18 inches? Can you imagine what Mary sensed when that baby came into the world? I cannot think about the birth of Jesus without getting real emotional, actually. Every time I see a depiction of it or every time I hear about the baby Christ lying in a manger, Mary, did you know, or all those songs, it just touches me so deeply to think that our God loved us enough and that Mary was such a wonderful one to receive Jesus. It's lovely to think about how she said, even though she didn't understand it all, she said, so be it unto the Lord's maidservant. And the word maidservant is really slave. In the Magnificat, she talks about her need for a Savior. She needed a Savior. She's the prototype of the first Christian. She's the first one in whom Jesus dwelled. She's a great woman. Thank God for her and her example in this matter. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, this is what Paul writes, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to describe what that mystery is. The mystery is that he, speaking of God, was revealed in human flesh. As we were reading from John chapter 8, and I'll ask you to go there now, if you will, to John chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 57 through 59, which we read from earlier today. Here again, I'm going to make some comments as I read these verses. In verse 57, the Scripture says, So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now, Jesus probably looked older than his age. Otherwise, they would not have chosen fifty as a number to describe him. In Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant, Jesus himself, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he said there was nothing about his appearance that would attract us to him. Now, we are wowed, are we not, by beautiful people, whether they're good-looking people, 
they're fit people, whether they're intellectually strong people, if they're rich people, those are the kind of people that we are attracted to. But Jesus, if He were in the room here and just sort of sidled into the room without making any pronouncement about Himself, without healing anybody, without doing anything miraculous, initially we probably would not be impressed with Him. Do you know why? Is because what the Lord says in the book of 1 Samuel, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Our godliness, our level of spiritual maturity, our Christ-likeness may be measured by the way in which we view people. And the mature person, the true Christ-like person, doesn't make a decision based upon the appearance of a person, but takes time to get to know the person and look into the heart of the person as that individual peers into that person's life in conversation and relationship. He says, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Notice Jesus' reply. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Whenever Jesus introduces a statement by this phrase, truly, truly, the word is amen, amen, or amen, amen, as we would say it. It's a Hebrew word or an Aramaic word. It was a word common in the Middle East in the languages of the people. Whenever a person would hear something that was believed in, the person would say, truly, truly, amen, amen, which means this. It means confirmed, confirmed. Yes, yes. With the strongest conviction, one would say that. And Jesus was doing that. He would was in conversation with the Father at all times. He hears from the Father. He passes it on to those to whom he speaks. And he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. The translation, I believe, that Drew read, the ESV, great translation, says, Before Abraham was, I am. That's really the most accurate translation of this text. And what is he saying? When did Abraham live, by the way? How long before Jesus, did Abraham live in this world? The scholars are generally agreed 2,000 years separated the birth of Jesus, that's roughly speaking, and the birth of Abraham. 2,000 years. So what was Jesus saying when he was saying, before Abraham was, I am? He was saying, I pre-existed. And more importantly, he was saying, I am eternal. He was saying, I'm God. That's what he was saying. So who is this one who is predicted by Isaiah in 7.14. None other than God. And then Jesus makes this remarkable statement, Before Abraham was, I am. Does that ring a bell for any of you? When Moses encountered God in the burning bush experience in the backside of the Midianite desert, and he said, Whom shall I say sent me when I meet the people of Israel? Whom shall I say sent me when I come before Pharaoh? He was a little nervous about that for good reason. And this is what the Lord said to him through the burning bush. Tell them or tell him, I am sent you. The word I am is the verb of being, obviously, in the Hebrew language. And it is a word which is translated often in our Bible by the word Jehovah. God, Jehovah. And when... Messiah is predicted, he is described as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God. 
Make no mistake about it. Jesus did not become God. Jesus is God. Why did he have to be God? Well, allow me a stab at this, going back to the idea of the virgin birth. Why was the virgin birth necessary? There have been all kinds of attempts made by so-called Christian scholars over a long period of time to explain away the virgin birth because it's contradictory to science. Well, this is why Jesus became a man. Listen carefully. As we know it, when we study the Old Testament, what we discover is that Adam is the one who is made responsible for the sin of the world. It was through Adam that sin entered the world, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Well, didn't Eve sin? Wasn't she the one who took the bait? Well, yes, she did take the bait, and she did sin. But God held Adam responsible. Evidently, he was in the area. He might have been, as some scholars suggest, even listening to this discussion which Eve and the serpent had. But he didn't intervene and stop what had happened. But what we do know for sure is that the seed of sin comes through Adam. And it was necessary that a woman who would be the receptacle for the seed for the Messiah, that a woman would be a virgin so that the child that was conceived would not have the seed of Adam, the sinful nature, in him. The virgin birth was necessary for your salvation. Do you know it? You better be glad that there was a virgin birth because there had to be someone like us. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 talks about we as children are partakers of flesh and blood. Likewise, Jesus was a partaker of flesh and blood. Why? In order that a like sacrifice could be made for our sins. Jesus, fully man, fully God, Jesus going to the cross, died in our place, and the sacrifice of his life was acceptable for our salvation. But Jesus was God also. I was asked last week by a very godly woman in our church. She said, could Jesus have sinned? Now think about that a moment. The answer I gave her, and I'm convinced is correct, no, he couldn't sin. Why? He's God. God can't sin. So what's all the business about his being tempted? What difference would it make to him if he couldn't sin? Certainly it would just be like water off a duck's back, right? But that's not the case. Because in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, and I'm paraphrasing this, basically what the writer says is that Jesus suffered immensely just by being tempted. He had no sin in his person, hum humanly, but no sin in his being as God as well. So Jesus is the great I Am. Jesus is fully God. And fully man. He is God with us. Now let's read verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus not only knew that he is God and was willing to reveal that, if these men had not gotten it, he wanted them to know this group of detractors, his enemies as it were. Now, they heard what he said and they knew. They understood when he said, before Abraham was, I am, what he was saying. 
he was blaspheming God. He was equating himself with God. And he was correct to do that. And so what did they do? They picked up stones to stone him. In Scripture, we see two reasons that people were stoned. One reason, I'll give you an illustration of this. Maybe you remember when David's son Absalom led in a coup d'etat and had his father dethroned. His father was leaving Jerusalem. And as he and his entourage made their way away from Jerusalem, they came to a little village known as Baharim. And in Baharim, there was a man named Shimei, And Shimei was a descendant of Saul, or at least a kinsman of Saul, who had been the king before David. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he loathed David. And so as David and his entourage were passing by through the village, he picked up stones, one man against the king of Israel and many others beside him, and just tossed stones at him, tossed stones at him, as if to say, you don't belong here, get out of here, you are no longer king. But the way in which this word is most often used is in response to a blasphemous statement, the likes of which these Jews believed Jesus had made. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said, I'm God. This was not the first time this had happened. The same thing happened in the 10th chapter. Actually, it was the first time. I'm ahead of myself, of course, as usual. But in the 10th chapter, you may remember Jesus makes this great statement. I love this statement. Before he is going to move forward to his death in Jerusalem, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me and is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And do you remember what happened when Jesus said, I and the Father are one? The same group of people, perhaps, maybe a different group altogether, picked up stones, and what did they do? They were ready to stone Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, they did not think that Jesus was simply saying, as some people try to explain this away, for instance, those who are devotees of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus was not saying he was God. He was just saying he and God were one in purpose. Well, these Jews would have said the same thing, that they were one in purpose with God. So it's another example of Jesus acknowledging that he's God, not simply in purpose, and they were one in purpose, no doubt, but they were one, the same essence, the same being. Who do you say that the Lord is? Jesus asked this question of a group of Pharisees near the end of his life. It's found in Matthew 22:42. He says, Who do you think the Christ is? Whose son is he? And the New Testament really yields a lot of answers to that question. In fact, in Mark's gospel, he's called the son of Mary. And this speaks of the humanity of Jesus. In the genealogy that introduces the Gospel of Matthew, he's called the son of David. This speaks of the royalty of Jesus. He is a king. He's the king of kings. We're told that in the book of Revelation. Also, in that same verse, the first verse of the 
First chapter of the book of Matthew, he's described as the son of Abraham. Speaking of the universality, remember what we looked at last week about the difference between the law and the promise and how the promise takes priority over the law? Remember our study that from Galatians chapter 3, this great promise, which was that God spoke to the man Abram, Abram's name before he became Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12. And in that, in the first verse, he said, I will make of you a great nation. And then a little bit further down in that long verse in Genesis 12, he concludes by saying, And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That would mean everyone, not just those who are descended by natural birth from you, Abraham, but all the families in the earth shall be blessed. He was speaking about most of us. The vast majority of us present today have no Abrahamic blood coursing through our veins. We are Gentiles. But the gospel is for all whose hearts have been circumcised by the Spirit of God. How God comes to us. And as Romans 2 says, that He is a true Jew who is one inwardly. Remember, God looks at the inward part of who we are. He evaluates us by our heart. So, who do you say he is? Son of Mary? Son of David? Son of Abraham? You'd be right in all those. Son of God. This is one of the ways in which Jesus describes himself. The Son of God, or is described. And then, one that's often used is he's described as the Son of Man. He describes himself this speaks of his identity with us. He identifies with us. He's accessible to us. Any casual reading of the gospel would give us this clear indication. Jesus is always available, isn't he? What a wonderful Lord he is. Now, what difference does this make to us? It makes a big difference. It has to do with our salvation. That's the biggest difference it makes in anyone's life. But let's think a little more in depth about this. And what I'm going to do in the remaining moments that we have we're going to look at the various statements that Jesus makes where he uses this formula, I am, and he fills in the blank at the end. The first of which we find in John 6:35. He describes himself as the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never go thirsty. Jesus is the bread of life. That does not mean that he's a loaf of bread. What it does mean is he is the one who sustains life. When you eat, you eat in part for sustenance. The thing that really drives me to eat is my stomach notifies me that it's empty and I need something to eat to do what I've got to do. Jesus is the bread of life. He sustains us in this life. Without him, there is no hope of sustenance in this life. Not talking about obviously physical sustenance. I'm talking about spiritual life. But also I eat because it satisfies me. There's nothing quite like eating a great meal and after having eaten it, just enjoying the feeling of fullness. Not overly stuffed, but fullness, right? It's satisfying. And Jesus has come to satisfy us. He says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
And He is our righteousness, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're struggling with a lack of satisfaction, go to Jesus and eat of Jesus and drink of Jesus. Jesus says, if any man is thirsty, let him keep on coming to me and keep on drinking of me. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit, the writer of John tells us. So, Jesus is the bread of life. He's the sustainer. He's the satisfier. Is that relevant to you? It's very relevant to me. More relevant than I'm even able to appreciate for sure. In the 8th chapter of John, the 12th verse, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. Now let's back up just a little bit to the introduction in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing has come into being. And the Scripture goes on to say, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We need light. We need light for understanding. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 that the minds of the unbelieving persons, those minds are darkened. You can be intellectually superior, but be darkened in your mind because you do not have the light of Christ in your life. The Spirit of God is not in you. One of the more fascinating verses in the Bible to me is found in 1 Corinthians 2.14 where the Bible says that the natural man, speaking of the person who does not know Christ, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Do you know an eight-year-old boy like Blake? I don't know. Blake, are you eight already? Ten. I'm sorry, Blake. I'm confessing this before everybody here. Would you forgive me? Okay. All right. He's already double digits. That's great. But Blake, at 10 years old, can understand. I know this because I've had conversation with the young man. He understands things about the Lord that a lot of 40-year-old men with PhDs wouldn't understand. Why? Because the light of the world lives in him. And that light enlightens, Jesus enlightens us to things we would not otherwise know. This is part of the mystery of godliness. So, Jesus is the light of the world. Do you need direction in your life? Do you find yourself wondering really why you're even here? A lot of people struggle with that in their adult life. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Your purpose is rather clear. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Your word is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet, or a lamp unto my path, a light unto my feet. God has given us this opportunity to follow Jesus Christ. And going back, I'm repeating verse 12 of chapter 8. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me does not walk in darkness. You need clarification in your life. You need 
the capacity to find a place of peace in your life, follow the Lord. He is the light of the world. Then in chapter 10, Jesus makes two references to himself. In chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the door. Now, was Jesus a literal door? Was he a wooden door? No, throughout these descriptions where he says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, he's speaking in figurative language, poetic language, metaphorical language. The idea of the door helps us to see who he is. He's the entry point into a relationship with God. He is the only way to God. Jesus is the way, he says about himself in John 14. No one comes to the Father except through him. When Jesus makes this statement in John 10:7 about being the door, he was describing himself as a shepherd. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But in that text of Scripture, he says, The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And when we think of a sheep pen, we think of something like a corral that has a nice wooden sturdy fence around it, something like that. But really, these pens for the sheep were makeshift. And just some brush was placed around in a circle. And once the shepherd got all the sheep in, they were all in, then there was no door, but the shepherd himself would lie down there across the opening. And what was that for? To protect the sheep. Jesus is our protector. Remember what we looked at from John 10? No one can take us out of his hand. Jesus will not throw us away because in John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, never cast away, never throw away. Once you are in the hand of Jesus Christ, you can count on His never throwing you away. And let me give you a quick grammar lesson on that. Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. That one Simple-sounding word, never, literally translates two words in the original language, two little particles, both of which mean not. It's a double negative. Jesus was a poor grammarian. He says, I will not never cast away. That was perfectly good Greek, by the way. It was the strongest possible way that a Greek speaker or writer could communicate something negatively. He won't throw us away when he says in John 10, 27 about his sheep hearing his voice and his knowing them and they're following him. He says, I have given eternal life to them. Wonderful. And listen, they will never perish. Would you like to hazard a guess as to what two little words translate the English word never? Ooh and may, not never. You see, when you come into the hand of Jesus, we talk about eternal life being a gift, and we're right to do that. We've seen it in the words of Jesus. He gives us eternal life. We can't earn it. We do not deserve it. He gives it to us. But think about what he says in John 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Have you ever thought of yourself as a gift from God the Father to Jesus? You're a present to Jesus, and he loves you. You're invaluable to him. He died for you. What a wonderful Lord we have. What a wonderful gospel we have. So Jesus is the door, and he is also the good shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep. We know that's talking about his death on the cross. 
Later he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Another way of saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. Then the 11th chapter, in the 25th verse, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, will live rather, even if he dies. Now this is really relevant. And the older I get, the more relevant it becomes. Because I and you, no matter how young you are, we each have an appointment with death. It's appointed unto man once to die. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, the Bible says, so we must die. It's a necessity. We're going to die. And the good news is for us that if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be a transition for us from this life to the next. And the first face we will see when we wake up in death is the faith of face of Jesus, if I understand the Scripture correctly, because he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. I don't understand that, but remember, he's God, and he can do that, and I believe he will do that. So he's the resurrection and the life. He called Lazarus out of the grave in that 11th chapter. He says, Lazarus, come forth. This man who had been dead for days comes out of the tomb, and he's awake. He's alive. This happened to us if we know Jesus, because the Bible says that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that we've been made alive in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. What a wonderful thing to think of. Well, 14, Jesus says, I am the way. There's only one way to God. I hope you understand this. There's a lot of bad information circulating in the world about this. Jesus is the only way. I'm sorry. He says that. And he has the credentials to say it. Not only is he God, but he's the only man who ever died and came back to life and didn't die again. He is God. We better listen to what he has to say. And he says, I am the way. There's no alternative route to heaven. Jesus is the only way. He says, I am the truth. He's absolute truth as he stood before Pilate. You may remember that Pilate mused, what is truth? And truth personified was right before him. We can depend on what Jesus says. He is God. God cannot lie according to the book of Titus chapter 1. What he says is true. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And then in John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And you are the branches. He's talking about those followers of his. So Jesus makes this analogy. He's a grapevine, and we who know him are like branches. And branches depend upon the vine for life. And the vine and the branch have a symbiotic relationship. Without branches, there is no fruit production, correct? And so these branches, you and I, if we abide in Christ, we bear much fruit. And the Lord has a motive for that. Because he says in that same section, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So, he's saying, My Father deserves and desires your glory. And the way that we glorify him is by bearing fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, yes. But people coming to faith in Jesus through our walking after Jesus Christ, following the Lord Jesus. 
If you will, as we finish this morning, turn to John 18. And in the 18th chapter of John, there's a description of Jesus' arrest in the garden, Gethsemane. Let's begin with verse 3 of chapter 18. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, the word he should be in italics in your translation in the Bible. I don't know how it works on an iPhone or an iPad, but it should be in italics. And whenever you see a word in italics in the Bible, it means the word really doesn't appear in the text. It was added by the interpreters to help make sense out of it for people like us as we read the Bible. Literally, he said in answer to the question, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, and he says, I am. That's all he said, I am. And what was the response of those big bad soldiers? What happened to them? And probably Judas too. What happened to them? They went flat on the ground. They were pinned. And here's how we know this. Because the word which is used for fell to the ground is a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe someone who has been pinned to the mat in a wrestling match. So by the very statement of his identity, I am, they all fell to the ground. And if Jesus had not let them up from there, they'd still be there. Skeletons for sure. But they would be there. Jesus was not a victim when it came to his passion. Jesus was a victor. Make no mistake about it, it was a horrible death which Jesus died. We have no clue about the physical dimensions of it. They're awful. But he was not the only one who died that kind of physical death. The spiritual dimensions are so much more grievous because Jesus drank the cup that the Father gave to him, which was the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself so you and I could be saved. But in this text, what we see next in verse 8, Six, actually. Seven, actually. Therefore, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he had spoken of. Whom? Of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. I love that. Jesus doesn't lose anybody. We've already talked about that, haven't we? We see the power of Jesus at the end of his life. I am. He is the sovereign Lord. In him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Jesus is God. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head? If you ever believed in Jesus, I'm not talking about intellectual belief here. I'm talking, have you really trusted Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? Have you recognized that you're a sinner? And without forgiveness, you have no hope in this life and your destiny is 
a destiny of what the Bible calls everlasting destruction. It never ends. Jesus died to rescue us from that kind of destruction by becoming a person who was destroyed for us. What response do you have to Jesus? Who do you say that He is? In the privacy of your heart, would you speak to the Lord and tell Him that you want to recognize Him as your King, as your Savior, your Lord? He says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her. Jesus has been knocking at your heart's door today. You sensed it. You have to open the door and receive him. Would you do that right now? Just say, Come in, Jesus, be my Lord. I, I need you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for those who have heard your voice through Jesus and they've opened the door to him and he has entered into their lives. And we pray, Lord, that they will continue to grow in Jesus and in their love for him. Thank you, Lord. Amen.